0: It was a time that I was by myself when, you know, I was spending three nights a week in hotels somewhere by myself and I would drink, you know, a lot of my work was done after the day had ended for most people because during the day I'm, you know, talking to customers and seeing customers and answering any immediate needs that are coming my way. So all of my follow-up and emails was done at night and it was just so easy for me to, you know, drink a couple glasses of wine while I was doing that. And I think a lot of sales reps do that. The difference between a lot of sales reps and me or somebody who, you know, might be struggling with addiction or alcoholism is that I didn't just have a few glasses of wine. I had a few bottles of wine.
1: And I've grown tired of traveling alone. I'm tired of traveling alone. I've grown
0: tired of traveling alone. Won't you ride with me? I've grown tired
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring boundary pushers, rabble rousers, freaks and geeks who are looking to shake up the $20 billion promotional products industry. My name is Mark Graham, co-founder of Common Skew, and joining me today is fellow chef and head rabble rouser Danny Rosen, co-president of Brand Fuel. When we started Promo Kitchen in 2011, our mandate was to create an open dialogue about the white elephants in our industry. Over the last hundred plus episodes of this podcast, we have looked at everything from the incursions of Alibaba and Amazon, to supply chain disruption, to the changing behaviors of end clients. We pride ourselves on addressing topics that bring people together on challenging issues. We continue this theme in today's episode as we discuss one of the darker sides of the human condition, drug and alcohol abuse, and the ways it can wreak havoc on individual lives as well as those lives around us. In particular, we are gonna focus on issues facing the promotional products industry. Danny and I are incredibly honored to welcome Amanda Delaney to the Promo Kitchen podcast today. Some listeners may be familiar with Amanda as she has worked in the industry as a supplier rep for 15 years. In 2016, she left the industry and checked into rehab after coming to terms with her addiction to drugs and alcohol. Amanda has been very open about her story and her path to sobriety on her blog, AskMyLittleMonster.com. After reading her blog and realizing this was a very personal and sensitive topic, Danny and I approached her to see if she was comfortable sharing her story with the PK community. Amanda responded with great interest. Our goal is to shine a light on this difficult yet important subject matter so we can create greater awareness about drug and alcohol abuse in our industry and perhaps help people who are currently struggling with the challenge of addiction. Amanda, thank you so much for being with us and welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you guys. It's good to be here.
1: So Amanda, can you tell us your industry story? How did you get your start and what are you doing now?
0: I got my start randomly through a temp agency right after I graduated high school in 2001. And I worked for a distributor back in Washington State for about seven and a half years. I don't think I woke up one day and thought I'm going to screen print t-shirts for a living, but that's what I did. I fell in love with the industry. I eventually went to a supplier and did that for, you know, the last seven and a half years of my career. And I know I just, I fell in love with the industry, promotional products and apparel when I worked for the distributor. You know, Sandmar was one of our biggest suppliers and my inside rep one day had said, we're hiring. Have you ever thought about coming to this side? So I did. And I went into the outside sales position, moved across the country for that position only like a year and a half after starting. And I was there until... until last October.
1: And so you've been very open and transparent about your struggles with drugs and alcohol in your blog. When did you first realize this was a problem?
0: You know, that's something that I think about a lot. It's definitely something I talk with my sponsor about a lot, my therapist a lot. I honestly don't know. You go into the rooms and when I say the rooms, you know, the meetings of AA and NA, Narcotics Anonymous, I spent a lot of time in those rooms and people tell their stories about I knew I was an addict when, you know, I knew I was an addict when I was shoplifting at 10 years old. I didn't. I did things when I was a kid that I just think normal kids do. As I got older and went into high school, you know, I drank and smoked weed like a lot of people did. Harder drugs definitely came my way over the years. I was just always that person who I wanted to be the life of the party. I craved attention from a very early age for whatever reason and you know, alcohol, especially, it just, it gave me the confidence that I wanted it, you know, it helped me fit in with the cool kids, so to speak. And once I started, I just never really stopped, you know, I can't really pinpoint when I knew I had a problem during obviously, the big downfall was when my mom died. And then my second downfall was obviously losing my job with Sandmar. The treatment and whatnot, I'm starting to see signs just Throughout the years, of how I had a problem a lot, a lot longer. I've had a problem much longer than I guess I thought. It's hard for me to pinpoint. I think I've always had a problem if I'm being completely honest.
1: Yeah. And I so appreciate your honesty. I mean, it's so refreshing, I think, to hear you talk about this. And I appreciate this. And I know Danny does as well. I'm curious about this idea of rock bottom. Are you able to articulate what is rock bottom for an alcoholic or drug addict?
0: Everybody has a different rock bottom. You know, like I said, I had two rock bottoms. Losing my mom almost two years ago was one. Losing my job with San Mar was definitely another. And, you know, some rock bottoms aren't as bad as others and vice versa. Everybody's rock bottom is definitely different. But in general, rock bottom is when you have just become emotionally and spiritually bankrupt. You can't function with it. You can't function without it. You've lost things. Some people have lost more. Than others, some people have lost less, but yeah, rock bottom—you know, by definition—that they'll teach you in the rooms is essentially just when you have come to the end of yourself, whatever that looks like for the individual.
2: Yeah, that's uh, that's some heavy stuff. Um, I, I want to also say thank you for being so transparent on this podcast and with your blog, which I just want to share. We'll, we'll put it in the liner notes, but it's askmylittlemonster.com. and I'd encourage anybody to read that. It is refreshingly powerful, intimate. It strikes a hard chord for anybody who has been around addiction. And even if you haven't, I think it could educate you. So kudos to you and your writing. It's really impressive, Amanda. Let's keep talking a little bit about the industry. I think folks that are listening are mostly in the industry. I'm right. sure well some others. I think people are interested in life as a sales rep. I think about life as a sales rep and you're living out of a suitcase, you're going from town to town, you're doing a presentation in the afternoon or the morning, and then you're going out at night, possibly with customers or in a strange place with strangers. And, you know, I've done my fair share of travel, but when I think about what it is that sales reps in our industry and others like it have to do, I have to think that's not easy for someone who's got in a situation with addiction. So how did your life as a sales rep contribute to the struggles with drugs and alcohol?
0: you know, in my mind, validated what I was doing. I loved traveling. I loved my position. I loved the company. I loved my customers. I absolutely loved what I did. But it is an industry where you're often entertaining. And even, you know, not so much the entertaining that I could keep under control for a while until it got to the point where I couldn't. It was a time that I was by myself when, you know, I was spending three nights a week in hotels somewhere, by myself, and I would drink, you know, a lot of my work was done after the day had ended for most people. Because during the day, I'm, you know, talking to customers and seeing customers and answering any immediate needs that are coming my way. So all of my follow up and emails was done at night. And it was just so easy for me to, you know, drink a couple glasses of wine while I was doing that. And I think a lot of sales reps do that. The difference between a lot of sales reps and me or somebody who, you know, might. Be struggling with addiction or alcoholism is that I didn't just have a few glasses of wine. I had a few bottles of wine. Good. You know, it was easy for me, because I made my own schedule. So I could make my own schedule that worked for me and my customers, you know, I, I didn't have to start my day until 10 o'clock in the morning if I didn't want to. So you know, that essentially enabled me to drink at night and then get up and function the next day. So for a long time, I think I was In denial about the fact that I had a problem. First of all, everybody around me was doing it. Second of all, my customers were asking me to take them out and do it, you know. And third of all, I was in a hotel. I'd be working in a hotel bar with a bunch of other people sitting there doing the same thing. So it validated what I was doing for a really long time until it got to the point where it was becoming unmanageable.
2: Do you think just taking your situation out of of the picture for a moment? Do you think there's a lot of pressure for sales reps in the industry to entertain and with it might come alcohol or other things that might take you down this path?
0: I do. And, you know, I've met some great sales reps over the years that don't drink, but a lot of them do, you know, and that's the fun part of our industry, right? It was one of my favorite parts and that's the fun part for customers. And that's when you really get to, you know, bond with your customers and you kind of put the work stuff off for a second and you talk about personal relationships and, you know, the families and the kids and so on and so forth. And I mean, what's better than to do that over a few beers and loosen up. So I think it's promoted, it's encouraged. It's an easy habit to slip into, you know, at one point got to the point for me where I'd rather take customers out than go home and drink by myself. And then again, still somewhat like validating the fact that I was drinking as much as I was because I was doing it, you know, on the clock, for lack of better terms. But yeah, I do think there's a lot of pressure for drinking and entertaining and socializing. But I also think that's alcohol in general. Alcohol in general is promoted and encouraged and it's everywhere. Yeah,
2: I would agree. And there are probably some alternative things that can happen that don't include alcohol. But I think that's the number one thing that people drift to. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about turning points for you. You're heading towards rock bottom, you're feeling it, you're going through a really tough time. What was the turning point for you to quit and get help?
0: <laughs> this is a little dark. I was let go from San Mar October 10th of last year, and I spent the next few months in a very dark place. You know, I, I had said in my blog that isolation really became my only solitude. I had just lost control of everything, and I lost something that I was... You know, that job was more than just a job to me. You guys know from being in the industry... A lot of us aren't necessarily in it to make the big bucks. We're in it because it's fun and we love what we do and we love the people and the energy. And I loved what I did. I lived for what I did. And when I lost that, I felt like I had lost everything. You know, that's all I had known. That's the whole reason I had moved to another state. And I was already in such a dark, depressed place from losing my mom the previous year that I just spiraled downhill. You know, I I got to a point... After I lost my job that I didn't want to see anybody because I realized that I had a problem and it was about two weeks before I had come down to treatment. Well, it was about a month before I came down in treatment. You know, my friends were seeing things that I wasn't seeing, obviously, because I was drunk and high. Most of the time they saw me, all of the time they saw me, if I'm being honest, you know, two of my friends said that they didn't want me to be around their baby girl anymore and that broke my heart because they didn't know what version of me that they were going to be getting. Other friends just said that they didn't really want to be around me because, I, I mean, I, I was out of control. I wasn't fun to be around. If I wasn't crying, I was angry. I just I turned into this monster when I drank. That people really just kind of started pushing me away a little bit. And um, about two weeks before I came to treatment, I knew that it was more than a problem. I knew that it was something much bigger than just drinking too much. And I had called my best friend and told her that um, I had tried to kill myself. Now, this was not true. I did not try to kill myself, but I was just in such a dark place and I knew I needed help. But I also knew that I wasn't ready to admit to anybody else that I needed help and I called her and she, you know, called the cops and sent me to the hospital. And when I woke up that next morning, she had done for me essentially what I couldn't do, but that was a big cry for help for me. And then the next day to, you know, realize how far down I had gone. I just, I, I knew, I just knew that I needed something and I wasn't going to get it from just stopping drinking. I had tried that. I wasn't going to get it from stopping the drugs. I had tried that. I just thought that the only way for me to get help was to commit myself to, you know, a rehab. And that's what I did. And it ended me in Florida. Mm -hmm.
1: Wow. Amanda, do you get the sense that others in our industry struggle with substance abuse, but may not be admitting they have an issue? I'm really curious to the extent to which you may see yourself as either an outlier or as someone who may be surprisingly common.
0: Yeah, I do. I do. I think it has to be, you know, coming down here and being surrounded by alcoholics and addicts and hearing their stories and just kind of the day to days of how they got to the same place that we're all in together. And I absolutely do. Like I said, I knew that I had a problem, but I did not realize that I was by definition an alcoholic and an addict in every way, shape, and form until I got down here and had knowledge of exactly what that means. You know, just little things that I was doing that I thought were normal. Calling in or canceling meetings, or you know, drinking three bottles of wine by yourself at night, like on a Tuesday when you have to work the next day, those things aren't normal. And I think it's really easy, especially for people who are traveling who might have a problem, or you know, even might not know that they have a problem that are you know, sitting in their hotel drinking until midnight, one o'clock in the morning. That's just not normal, (laughs) it's not normal to do every single night, and you know, that's what I was doing just little lies that I was telling I mean I was being dishonest with myself I was being dishonest with everybody around me you know I often wondered in the morning if my breath smelled like alcohol like if you've ever thought that you probably have a problem it's just not normal to drink the way that I was drinking and I find it really hard to believe that in an industry that is You know, that there is so much drinking involved that there aren't other people that might be struggling with the same thing. And especially in this industry, I mean, it's sales, it's marketing, it's fun, it's entertaining. It might be hard to admit that you have a problem because, like I said, the job validates itself.
1: Yeah. So, Amanda, we at Promo Kitchen have a mixer every January. We have it at Expo the day before the show opens. And one of the big parts of the event is an open bar to all attendees. In your opinion do you think that we're creating a double standard around drinking with an event like that
0: you know I don't honestly I don't just to give you a little bit of background for anybody who is listening or wondering you know what separates us the the mixer the events the drinking that's great for normal people you know when you really dive into what a true alcoholic is and you start reading the big book and you start listening to what the program tells you you know over a hundred years have gone by since they came up with the solution for alcoholism and addiction. And still to this day, no doctor and no scientist has been able to prove or determine what makes somebody an alcoholic or an addict. But they do talk about the allergy. I know they compare it a lot to peanuts. So somebody is allergic to peanuts. They're not gonna eat peanuts. But we who are quote unquote allergic to alcohol continue to do it. Why? They still don't know. So I think that there are plenty more normal people who can go out and they can drink and can have a good time, but it's not controlling their lives. You know, for me, I have that allergy. I don't know why. I don't know why I was born with it. But you know, any literature that you read in the program will talk about that allergy and the cravings and the phenomenon of obsession. And if you are going to the mixer, you know, and you are planning your second drink before you've even ordered your first you probably have a drinking problem. That's what they talk about with the phenomenon of craving is that you are planning your next drink before your first drink, you know. If you're having 3 beers in the same amount of time that you might be drinking one, you probably have a problem. So no, I don't think it's a double standard. I think there are a lot of people that can go out and can drink, you know, to be completely honest, I'm jealous of those people. I I wish I could be one of those people, but I'm not. And you know, there is no cure for it. There's like not a drug that you can take that can say, "Hey, go to this mixer and Drink like a normal person tonight, you're cured. There's just not, there is a solution to it, you know, and that solution is AA, that solution is the 12 steps, but that's something that on an individual level, you have to commit to. You have to realize, first of all, that you have that problem. No, no, I don't think it's a double standard. I, I think it's great for the people who are able to do it. I'm just not one of those people.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. We struggle with it from time to time. You know, do we call it a mixer? Do we call it a party? And do we focus more on education and networking? And the backdrop seems to always be that getting people there to hear our message, you know, sometimes you got to provide something to get them there. And so if it's not a free drink, it better damn well be some great branded promotional products, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe exactly. Some toys. Yeah,
1: the shape of Danny Rosen.
2: As long as I can hold hold a beer for me. All right, that's not appropriate. Let's, <laughs> let's shift gears. All right, let's shift gears, guys. I think it would be remiss for us not to talk a bit about social media. I did a little research before this because it really is, it's a curious thing for me because I think we're all active in social media and some are not. There are people who are active posting things, people are active and liking, people are active, engaging, and then there's sort of the stalkers, right? The people who just sort of troll what's going on in the world. And, and the stat I found was interesting. It said one third of people feel dissatisfied with their lives after browsing Facebook. And I thought, gosh, I, I bet that's true. And then I got to think it and I came to the conclusion that I think a lot of people on social media are just living a lie. They think that everything is wonderful and they're only posting the wonderful things. And yet the best thing about social media, in my opinion, is being real even when it means being raw and sharing something as difficult as alcoholism addiction and things like that so what would you say to the people who if we all agree are living a bit of a lie on social media only singing the happy songs and not really getting real about themselves
0: first of all i 100% agree with you and i absolutely was one of those people you know i'm very open i share a lot about the bad as well as the good on facebook but 100% i put more good times than i do bad times and i think a lot of people do and You know, I can't speak for somebody else who might be doing this. But I know for me personally, when I was posting on Facebook and Instagram, the most is when I was in the darkest place. I took those little bits, you know, photos out with friends before I was so drunk that I didn't remember. And I would post those so that everybody thought that I was great because I would get likes on it, you know, and then the next day, I'd have 75 likes on this picture. And in some sick, twisted way, it made me feel better. and. You know, I would look at other people's Facebook about how they look so happy and they're traveling and they're killing it at their job or they're doing this and they're doing that. And then for me personally, I've been battling this demon for, you know, a long time and it is sad to look at that. And so I would kind of counteract that sadness by posting something else to get other people's attention. And it was just kind of a vicious cycle. You know, I said, again, the darkest days for me is when I would be the most active on social media for sure.
2: That's interesting. It seems like things have changed a bit for you in terms of how you were posting then and what you're posting now, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that. But really, I think at the baseline here, I think we want to talk a little bit about why you chose to become so public. I mean, what you wrote was so raw and real. You know, you have shared things that are incredibly vulnerable for you in terms of you know possibly alienating people in your life, possibly putting your you know future you know, job situation at risk. Why did you open up so publicly about your struggles with addiction?
0: You know, one thing that I have learned in this program is honesty. You know, it's the first principle of the first step. And it's just something that they preach so much is honesty. And I realized that I have been living a lot of aspects of my life in a lie for so long. I've kept so many things to myself. You know, there's people that are coming to me like, I had no idea that things were so bad for you. And I've been lying to everybody that I know, you know, even when I lost my job with Sandmar, I knew exactly what the reason was. And I lied to everybody about that. And it's exhausting. It's so exhausting. I already felt like I was a prisoner in my own mind battling this addiction. And then not being able to come clean about it, not being able to, you know, talk about it, because I don't know how people are going to judge me. You know, I do want to get back in the industry someday. Is that going to affect my chances of that. What are people going to say about me? And when I got down here and I just realized that, you know, the only way that I think I can really free myself of the past and my secrets and, you know, the skeletons that I've had in my closet is to be open about it. And it's very therapeutic for me to share. It's very therapeutic for me to be able to be completely open and honest. And I have a long ways to go. I know that. But I have gotten to a point very quickly where I... I'm learning to really love myself again. I know that I won't be able to truly love myself unless I can be completely honest with myself. And, you know, to be completely even more honest, it keeps me accountable. You know, I was down here for 66 days and I had a relapse and I went out for two days and came back and I only have 37 days of sobriety now. But the only thing that is going to continue to keep me sober, other than working the steps and working with my sponsor and working a program, is by being honest. And if I can be completely honest with people and the public, it'll keep me accountable too. And I need accountability. I'm an addict. (laughs) I need it.
1: Yeah, well done. Amanda, I'm curious to learn a little bit more about what the sober life has been like for you over the last 37 days compared to your non-sober life.
0: It's been hard. (laughs) It's not easy. It's not all rainbows and butterflies. It's definitely challenging. You know, I'm feeling things for the first time In my life, I'm feeling emotions that I have buried for so long that I didn't even know that they were emotions, you know. I have realized that I am incredibly insecure. I've always portrayed myself as a very confident person. Insecurities that I didn't know that I had are coming out. So it's been challenging, you know, And but it's also been rewarding. I've gone through a lot in the last couple of weeks. You know, I I think I mentioned that being down here, you know, South Florida is, one of the biggest places in the country for rehab. And unfortunately, that means it's one of the biggest places for drugs. And there's a lot of relapses. And last weekend, there were, you know, three people that I knew that were in my halfway house that died. One of my roommates OD'd one day right before I had come home. Another roommate of mine at the halfway house that I am at went out three days ago and is on a run and God knows where she is. So it's hard because you're dealing with those things and they're so raw in front of you. But the one thing that I have learned, especially after my relapse is that it doesn't matter how hard something is. It's never hard enough to pick up again. You know, drinking is only going to make it so much worse. And I know that because I put a lot of time investing into gaining knowledge of this program. And I definitely know that after going out after my relapse too. So yeah, it's challenging. It's hard. Things are pretty raw and real down here, but it's also really rewarding waking up in the morning and not having that moral hangover that I had for so long and just waking up happy with who I am, learning that I can do things sober. And not only are they fun, they are more fun than they were when I was drinking because I was so out of control at the end. So it's both. But I'm also in very early recovery. I know that the longer I go, the more rewarding it'll be. But yeah, it's, it's not easy, but it is 100% worth it. 100%.
1: Amanda, you've mentioned a couple of times this insecurity that you had as a young person and how that contributed to the challenges that you've had with drug and alcohol abuse. I'm interested to know some of the ways that you've been able to build up your confidence over the last few months, because it seems to me like that is probably one of the key aspects of you really seeing life through a new lens.
0: Yeah. And that's one of the things that, you know, is going to take me a little while to work on. It goes back to the honesty thing, you know, being honest with myself, being honest with other people. That's helped a lot. You know, I've surrounded myself with some really great women, and I'm trying to meet more women, strong women. Just being completely open and honest about everything has helped my confidence too, because I've been so insecure for so long, hiding these things or knowing that I've, you know, lied about this or, you know, done this or that that I wasn't proud of. And knowing that there are so many other people that have been exactly where you are, it's relatable. It makes me feel like I'm not alone. So surrounding myself with people, you know, that's another reason I'm going to be staying down here for a while is because being around those people and knowing that I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. I have an addiction. I have a problem. And that's why I've done the things that I've done. It's comforting and it really helps kind of boost up my self-confidence at the same time and you know, being able to work out again and just doing things that I want to do, learning how to be alone, learning how to sit with myself and you know, be alone with my thoughts. They're all kind of little little factors, but slowly but surely it's building.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I mean, and so you were talking about your health and I think people who know you see you and your focus on health And how much of a how much of a rock star you are there? (laughs) It's impressive what you've done, but it seems like there's a role that that has played in all of this in some way. I'm wondering if it's a good thing or a bad thing, and talk about that a little bit. And when you're going through the addiction and what you're dealing with now in sobriety,
0: I love working out. You know, I've been involved in CrossFit for about four years. I eat pretty healthy. That's been a confidence booster for me, even when I was going through my dark times. You know. I can't tell you how much better I am at the gym now that I'm not drinking or that I'm not still drunk from the night before when I go into the gym. But yeah, that was a huge confidence booster for me. I was somehow still able to work out and somehow still able to, you know, beat people in workouts and do, you know, CrossFit competitions a few times a year. I was somehow able to do that. I think that was always more mental for me, because I feel like I was so lost and so broken in so many aspects of my life that that was like the one area where I could go and, you know, be strong or, you know, just feel a little bit better about myself. It's definitely improved now, I feel a lot better than I did before. And again, it's just therapeutic for me. It's I don't know. It's it's motivation for me to get up in the morning. You know, it's motivation for me to get up and go work out at six a.m. and and start my day right and know that I'm not hungover and I can get up and go work out at six a.m. So it helps keep me sober. I feel better. You know, when you feel better or you feel like you look better, you feel better. I mean, all around, it's just it's just much better, much better.
2: A lot of uh, the word "better" was used like eighteen times. That, <laughs> that, that's uh, reassuring.
0: It's um, better. It's so much better.
2: It is better. So. That said, I was thinking that you might say that the exercise helps you remain sober, which sounds like maybe you're saying that, but is there anything that really, and also maybe a, a cue to other folks who might be going through a similar situation, what helps you stay sober?
0: The program, you know, yeah. the program and God, honestly. I was one of those people who, when people would talk about AA, I didn't believe it. I didn't believe that it worked. I don't understand how these 12 steps that you have written on a wall and getting together for an hour every day is going to help you stay sober. But when you you know really come, like I said earlier, to the end of yourself and you realize that you are powerless over a drug or alcohol like I was and you just really invest into yourself, it works. So far, it's just working. And that's one thing that I did not do before I relapsed was I wasn't working with a sponsor. I wasn't working steps. I wasn't going to meetings. And anybody that I talk to down here, when they talk about how they fell off, that's exactly why they fell off too. So the program, 100% is what keeps me sober. God, 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 I pray more than I ever have. My relationship with God is keeping me sober. And just surrounding myself with the right people, you know, the the right people that I have found. And, you know, they're they're not all good people. You know, I've been really hurt by people since I've been down here, people that I thought I was close to that have betrayed me and I've been hurt, but I've also met some really amazing people that when I'm having a day where I want to say, screw it all. And I want to go drink. They bring me back down. They get me to a meeting, all of the, you know, kind of that trifecta, but 100% God on the program.
2: Fantastic. Just one quick thought. I speak on behalf of Mark and very likely every listener when I say that we are proud of you. And I would say also rooting for you. This is Obviously, something very difficult and emotional, and just your sharing is really impressive. But we're cheering for you, Amanda.
0: Thank you, Danny. I appreciate it so much. The support has been very humbling.
1: Amanda, what message do you have for others in our industry that may be struggling with addiction to drugs and alcohol?
0: Oh, man. There is a solution. You know, if there's anything that I can drive home to somebody who is even wondering if they have a problem, there is a solution. It is a horrible, Disease. There's no known cure for it. And it's progressive. It's progressive. If you even think that you might have a problem, I can promise you, not just from my experience, but from the hundreds and hundreds of people that I have been in contact with over the last few months, it only gets worse. They say in the program that, you know, it comes to jails, institutions, and death. And for some people, all three before they get here. And I just can't emphasize enough that if you think that you or somebody else has a problem, nothing is worth not getting help for it. I was definitely worried about what people were going to think of me. I was worried that I couldn't do it. I was worried that it wasn't something that I would want to do. And that was scary. But at the end of the day, you just have to look at your life. And do you want to live because this disease, whether or not you think it's serious, so whether or not you think I just have a little drinking problem, I could put that down at any time it's not worth it. It's life or death. It it really is life or death. And again, and anybody, I mean, I'm more than happy to put people in contact with the right people. If they think they're having an issue, anonymity is a really big thing in the program. I just can't emphasize enough that you really just don't want to wait until it's too late. I've seen some pretty scary things down here and been around some pretty intense addiction stories. And I don't know, I just don't want anybody to get to the rock bottom that I got to. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy.
1: Yeah. And knowing what you know now, when would you have checked into AA knowing what you know now? Would it have been 10 years ago or longer?
0: Probably in 2001 when I got my first DUI. So when I was 18. Yeah. So about 15 years ago. Yeah. About 15 years ago, you know, I've had three DUIs in my life. It's all before the age of 25. If that's not a sure sign that I have a drinking problem, I don't know what is. The first time I was in trouble with the law, the first time I got arrested, I wish that I had gotten help. The second time, the third time, I wish I had gotten help. The only regret that I have, honestly, is not getting help sooner.
2: Yeah. So I just have one more question for you. This is really a, a call to action for others listening who may be struggling or for those people who know of someone struggling with addiction. Can you make some recommendations? You've already said that religion and your program have been really helpful for you and and people that you trust that you lean on. But are there good facilities, books, organizations for people to turn to that can provide good help?
0: Yeah, you know, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is definitely something I would start reading. If you even think that you have a problem, it breaks it down very simply. And I laughed out loud a lot when I was reading it because I related to it so much. So the big book, first and foremost, you know, and you couldn't tell me that when I was in my active addiction, that this book was going to save my life, but it's saving my life now. You know, Florida and California in general are really big on rehabilitation and treatment centers. I know for me personally, just because I was so far down that me just going to AA didn't help, but it's a start. So for somebody who thinks that they have a problem, it's a start. There's meetings everywhere around the clock. And, you know, treatment, there's a lot of different treatment centers. You know, I was in one for 35 days. Some people go for two weeks. It it just kind of depends, but you're not going to get anywhere if you don't put that first or if you don't put that drink down, or if you don't put that drug down, just do a little bit of research. And if you can relate to any little thing that you can see in that little bit of research with addiction, it's worth looking into. Super.
1: Amanda, do you have a sense as to when you're going to be able to go home?
0: You know, uh, when I'm ready, honestly. I'm out of inpatient treatment, essentially. So I'm down in South Florida. I'm living in a halfway house with some great girls. I know that sounds really scary. When I moved down here, there was no way in hell I was going to live in a halfway house. It just had a whole different meaning to me back home in Seattle. But you know, I'm I'm living in a a great house with some great girls and I'm in an intensive outpatient treatment program three nights a week. I go to meetings almost every single day. I'm on my third step. Obviously, there's 12 to go through. I don't want to go home until I've gone through all of them.
1: Yeah.
0: I don't, I don't know. Six months, a year, maybe. Who knows? Maybe indefinitely, if I'm being completely honest. I don't know. But, but that's the good thing. I don't, I don't have to know. You know, they tell you one day at a time in the program and that is 100% true. So.
1: Yeah. And it sounds like you're just really approaching this with a really level head. And I know certainly for Danny and I, we're in awe of, you know, the journey you've been on and just how open and transparent you've been on this podcast. And I know that others that are listening to this podcast in the PK community, I think will really benefit from this. Certainly folks that are struggling with addiction and even folks that aren't, but it's giving them, I think some insight into the hell that you've been through you know as a precaution i suppose
0: i hope so yeah i mean that's how they tell you, you stay sober when you get to that point is by giving away what you've been given and like i said you can only stay sober if you help another alcoholic and you know the sober life is not bad it's hard right now but i'm so much happier than i've ever been yeah. the love and support that i've had from you know friends and so many people in the industry has been overwhelming and humbling and you know you don't have to do it alone that's the best part is i felt so alone for so long and I don't anymore. So if anybody out there is struggling with addiction and alcoholism, or, you know, they feel like they're alone, you're not alone. You just, you just have to make that first step.
1: Amanda, we'd love to give you the final word. Is there anything else that you'd like to share about your experience or any message that you have for others that may be listening to this?
0: You know, just, it's, it's just so much more beautiful on the other side. And I know that I'm in really early recovery and I don't know it all, but I do know that as hard as this has been I would not go back to the way that I was living for anything I just I wouldn't you know I have my peace of mind I'm learning to love myself again no I mean it's it's a beautiful thing once you get to that other side and I know that it's scary and I know that it's hard you know obviously my blog is up there there's a way to contact me if anybody wants to anonymously I'm here I can put you in touch with the right people that you need to talk to I would really hate to see somebody struggling the way that I have struggled. I know how dark it is and I know how scary it is. And it doesn't have to be like that. It really doesn't.
1: Well, thank you. This was really powerful. I'm so glad that Danny and you and me were able to put the time aside to do this. This was really, really powerful. So thank you so much, Amanda.
0: Yeah, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. I've grown
1: Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. You can also show your support by donating to our cause at promokitchen.org slash donate. We would sincerely appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you. Your